Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Welcome to Epiphany's podcast, a ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. For more information about our church, you can visit epiphanyligonier.org. I want to tell you about uh, a crazy week that I had in my previous life before I was a full-time pastor here at Epiphany. Uh, On a work training trip that I went on in a previous job, I had the opportunity to stay one week in a Ritz-Carlton hotel. Ah, swanky, right? And what had happened was my boss had sent a few of us away for this week-long training on how to create a culture of hospitality, a culture of customer service with our staff. And the Ritz-Carlton hotel chain is known for their gold standard treatment. And the training was at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in St. Louis, Missouri. So, you know, maybe not the top of all the Ritz-Carltons, but, you know, it's a Ritz-Carlton. It's going to be good either way, swanky enough, as it were. And I walked into the front lobby, and I was a little overwhelmed, frankly, by the marble floors, the ornate, detailed woodwork, um, the scary cheerfulness of the bellhop and the valet. Check-in was smooth. The staff was polite to the point of being obnoxious. The hotel rooms had fluffy robes in them. I had never stayed in a hotel where you got your own fluffy robe to wear. Um, And we were wined and we were dined. And the staff knew that we were fellow workers in the hospitality industry. So they wanted to create a good impression. The the, the food was out of this world. Uh, An open bar was opened to us. We were given tours of their kitchen facilities in this massive hotel complex. I have never before seen a hotel that had its own on-site chocolatier. And on that trip, to to, to let you know that this is the real deal, on that trip you see the the Arizona Cardinals were playing the team formerly known as the St. Louis Rams in football. And the Arizona Cardinals were staying in this Ritz-Carlton, and we got to shake hands, some of our members of the team got to shake hands with Larry Fitzgerald, the all-star pro wide receiver for the Arizona Cardinals. And then this hotel had a cigar bar. And in the cigar bar, you could go and smoke cigars, and one night we shared the cigar bar and shared ashes with one hit wonder St. Louis rapper named Nelly, who of a certain generation, that means something. And he apparently had his own private stock in the humidor of rare and um, uh, expensive cigars. And so for one week, a bunch of professional collegiate dining program staff got to go to the Ritz-Carlton and feel like rock stars. And again, this hotel, it pulls out all the stops for its guests. The pro athletes, the rappers, the celebrities, they flock to this hotel because of the hospitality the customer service. And in our reading today from Genesis chapter 18, Abraham is going to roll out the red carpet for three travelers who are more than just travelers. And so I wanted to zoom in today and talk about hospitality and why it was important in the ancient world. I want to talk about the extravagant hospitality that Abraham shows these three travelers, and I want to talk about what it says about our relationship with God. That's what we're going to talk about today. All seems well with Abraham in Genesis chapter 18, where we've been going through the the book of Genesis so far, 
And what happened last week, you remember, is that God gave Abraham the ritual rite of, of circumcision. And so it seems that at this point, Abraham, all of his household have undergone the ritual. They have healed up, as it were. And now Abraham is sitting in the shade of his tent. This is probably the noonday heat, right? It's the Middle East. It's the ancient Near East. It ain't cool out in the summertime in the middle of the day. And so Abraham's probably taking a siesta. He's sitting in the shade, waiting for the hot time to pass so that he can come back and get to work in the evening after things cool down a bit. But suddenly, as he's sitting there, three men, three traveling men, appear to him, three travelers. So Abraham jumps up to greet them. What fools Abraham must be thinking. They're traveling in the heat of the day, the sun scorch, the heat, the dehydration. And so when he greets them, he does so with this deep bow of respect, a bow to the earth, the text says. And Abraham invites them in to take a load off and rest for the rest of that hot part of the day. O Lord, this is what Abraham says, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Again, he's bowing to the earth here. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. Sometimes in the Bible, you know, O Lord, you know, that means, you know, like God, he's addressing God. But in this instance, O Lord is like a very formal greeting. Right? It's almost like, you know, in English, you know, something like, excuse me, my good sir, or, you know, pardon me, good fellow, something like that. You know, this, this grandiose kind of introduction to, um, it's part of polite formal speech is what's happening. And, and this whole greeting is this very formal invitation to, again, come, sit with me, let me take care of you, get out of the heat of the day, um, and then you can continue your travelers, uh, travels after the, the sun goes down a bit. And this is a formal language thing. Notice the low cell here. He says, let a little water be brought to wash your feet. Um, let me give you a, a morsel of bread. Formal language. He's doing this very polite thing as these travelers come to him. And the travelers agree. Sure, do, have you, do as you have said. So the travelers come. Abraham very formally greets him. You know, like I met with the bow and everything. You know, come into my tent. Let me take care of you. And they say, sure, let's, let's, let's do it. We'll take a break. And so Abraham goes from sitting out in the noonday heat, relaxing in the shade of his tent. He snaps into action. He runs to Sarah, right? He says, quick, we have company. Start baking. Three sails of flour. Go, 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 go. And then he runs out to his, his men staff who, who are shepherding the herds. And he says, listen, fatten calf. We got to slaughter it. Go, go, go. We got guests. Come on, come on. And so these, these men are slaughtering the cow and, Sa and Sarah's starting to bake. And then he goes and finds milk and curds, like, like cheese, right? And he goes and gets curds. He brings them in. And he's, he's, he's putting together what ends up being a massive feast. A massive feast for three men who are simply expecting to come and take a load off, sit a spell to pass by a couple hours. And, and the quantity here is massive, okay? So what does the text tell us about uh, Abraham and flour? He wants three sayas of flour. Well, what is a saya? Um, something to the akin, three sayas of flour is like a five-gallon bucket of flour. Uh, imagine how many cakes you can make with a five-gallon bucket of flour. And, 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 and so she's in there, and she's baking, and she's going through this process. And, and again, a little cocktail napkin math, you know, it's not exact, but it's something like there's enough flour here to make cakes for 80 people. And she's going to make 
them all for three people. And not only is he, he doing 80 cakes for three people, but he slaughters a young and tender calf. I don't know um, if you could eat a whole calf in one sitting. I can't. I don't think three people can eat an entire uh, you know, cow, livestock, in one sitting. But sure enough, he slaughters the calf, and he roasts it over the open fire, and he gets the cakes and the, the cheese and the milk. One commenter said that this spread is something like a feast for a shah, a feast for a king. This is not how normal people ate in the ancient Near East. This is a massive spread. Abraham rolls out the red carpet for these guests. In fact, the text says not only does he roll out the red carpet, but the three guests are seated on the ground in the shade of these oak trees, and Abraham is off to the side. He's standing. He's watching in a tent. He's like the, the maitre d' of the restaurant. He's standing there thinking to himself, okay, time to take their first course, take it back, bring the second course, refill their plates, refill their drinks. Abraham may have offered a little water to wash their feet and a morsel of bread, but the travelers have not received that. They have received a feast fit for a king. They thought they were going to take a break for the afternoon, and instead they've stepped into the ancient Near East Ritz-Carlton. That's what's happening in our reading today. So the, they're, they're talking at this point. They're talking. They're, they're sharing conversation, and it's actually really funny. And, and the kids here are young enough. I can kind of tell you what's really happening here because they'll go in one ear, not the other for them. Um, the guests here are talking about Sarah, not Sarai, Sarah. They say, tell me about Sarah, which is crazy, right? Because it's only one chapter ago. Like, literally, it's not been long enough. The world does not know that God has changed uh, Sarai's name but these three men do it's a little bit of a, a little bit of a um, uh, an insight that these three men are perhaps more than the three men they shape up to be perhaps Abraham knows something's up here because this information about Sarah's name is not publicly public knowledge yet um, but these men ask again they ask for Sarah not Sarai in the middle of the conversation the Lord breaks in again now when you see the Lord here it's not the Lord like polite title it's the Lord. It's God. God breaks into the conversation. And God breaks in with news. Um, these three travelers are revealed here to be something like an ancient avatar of God of sorts. And in some physical incarnation of Abraham's God. Um, and, and so there's something here. There's something going on here with these three men that is mystical and spiritual and kind of beyond what we would normally expect. Um, but sure enough, when the three men visit Abraham's tent, the three men themselves, um, are in some way related to Abraham's God. It's as if God is visiting Abraham in the heat of the day. And so God gives this message. He says um, again uh, to Abraham, hey, just to reiterate, um, this time next year, uh, when we, you're going to have a son. And Sarah will be the, the mother of the son, even in her old age. And of course, they're like, where is she? And, and Abraham's like, she's in the tent. And of course, she's doing like this against the wall of the tent. She's eavesdropping in on the conversation. And so she hears this and she laughs. Abraham laughed last week. It's Sarah. Sarah's turn to laugh this week. She's scoffing in disbelief. But here's what the text says. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of woman had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed at herself saying, am I worn out and my Lord is old? Shall I have pleasure? This response is very funny because 
Sarah is old enough that her childbearing days are not just finished emotionally and physically, but biologically as well. If you pick up what I'm saying, she's 90 years old in this story. It would be a biological impossibility. So she laughs to herself and says, I am worn out. Read, I am old and tired and beyond ability to have children. My Lord is old. My husband is old and not particularly virile like he used to be. Shall I have pleasure? Shall I once again in my old age have enjoyable, explosive, and passionate, romantic, physical intimacy with my husband? This is definitely an R-rated joke. You can figure out the rest on your own here. And God's response to Sarah is, um, it's great. It's a great response. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Ask God. The one who knits together people in the womb also knits together wombs. Who is to say that God can or can't do anything? And when God comes and makes a promise, God keeps it. Surely, God says to Sarah, this time next year, Isaac will be born. And our reading concludes with this ominous note. Um, Abraham sees the three travelers off. Um, You know how sometimes you walk your guests out to the front porch, you walk them to the car. Abraham's doing the same thing with his guests. They finished. Apparently they've got enough leftovers to last them for a couple of weeks after that massive feast. Um, And they're leaving and they're heading out. And Abraham walks with them a ways to see them off. And presumably they come to a ridge. They look down over the ridge and way off in the distance they can see the city of Sodom. And that city is God's next stop. And we're going to pick up on that story next week. But you know the old icebreaker game uh, where if you hosted a dinner party, what three guests uh, would you have at the, at the party? What three people would you want to sit around the table if you could invite anybody from history or time you know, to your dinner party, that old icebreaker game? Um, I don't know that how many people actually say God and actually mean it, but it happened to Abraham. In some metaphysical, spiritual, corporeal way, um, whether uh, these three travelers are angels or they're corporeal embodiments of the Trinity, or Jesus and his two friends crash the Old Testament before he arrives in the New Testament, um, Abraham just hosted an afternoon feast for the God of the universe. Whether he knew it or not, Abraham just rolled out the red carpet for God. And in the ancient world, you see, the quality of one's hospitality was directly linked to somebody's virtue. If you were a good person, people knew it because you were good at hospitality, good at showing hospitality. Every member of the community was expected to pull out the stops whenever they had a visitor. And across the whole of the Bible, we see this good host theme playing itself out. We read stories of a widow um, who, is, who is in the middle of a famine. She has no food left. And um, the, the prophet comes to visit her and the widow says, I have enough food left to feed my son or the prophet. I'm going to feed the prophet. That's part of that hospitality thing because it would have been seen as a terrible and egregious thing to not feed the the visitor, the guest, uh, when they came to visit as opposed to feeding your family. It's a heartbreaking story in and of itself. And Jesus is regularly wined and dined at dinner parties because people are trying to sort of navigate this idea of like, hey, Jesus, come be my guest because I want to serve you and show you that I'm a good person and talk with you and and engage with you um, in a a hospitable way about your teaching and your ministry. And the kingdom of God is compared in Isaiah to a wedding feast. Um, Hospitality is this huge deal in the Bible. If you were a good person in the ancient world, your hospitality skills were a litmus test. 
how well you treated travelers, how well you treated the inconvenience of a person who just arrives on your front doorstep, how well you gave them your best Ritz-Carlton treatment was a sign of whether or not you were a good um, member of the society. It's a little different than our world, but that's the way it was back then. And that brings me back to my trip to St. Louis because, again, the level of of hospitality left me shocked um, that one could expect this out of a rich Carlton hotel. So employees had to memorize um, all of these vision and mission and values as part of their employment. And you could go around and ask the employees, hey, tell me about the the vision or the motto, and, and they'd be able to rattle it off. And their motto is, we are ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. And it's so pretentious, but it's also so cool because they actually believe it and they they embodied it, at least at this location. And at this location, we learned that any hotel employee, um, from the lowly housekeeping staff to the valet drivers or or even the bartenders, um, if if a guest had a problem with their stay, um, that those employees had, up, they could spend up to $2,000 of hotel money to fix the problem without asking anybody. They didn't have to ask their manager, they didn't have to ask um, their boss, they could just spend company money and tell them about it later. Fascinating stuff. And we heard stories of family emergencies where the Ritz-Carlton Hotel would book flights for free for its staff because they couldn't get home quick enough because the, the family, they, they couldn't book the flights quick enough and so the hotel would step in and book flights for people needed to get home to see their family and check out early. We heard stories of guests losing their luggage on flights and losing all their, their, their clothes. And so the Ritz came in and said, here's some money. Go buy yourself something to get you by until the luggage thing figures itself out. Um, they even had one story they told us. They were so proud of it that one of their regular customers had to go into St. Louis for a surgery at the local hospital system and needed a place to stay to recover for weeks afterwards. So they remodeled one of their guest suites to make it handicap accessible just for this one guest. Um, And so the Ritz-Carlton, you see, that level of hospitality would not have been seen with, in our time it's kind of over the top, it's kind of an old world thing. Um, But in that time, in the ancient world, that Ritz-Carlton sort of style of hospitality would have been linked to virtue. It would have been linked uh, to proof of their goodness, to God's blessing, proof that this organization um, was inherently good. But when Jesus comes along, he starts to upend the whole hospitality industry. He does. In the New Testament, when Jesus comes along, the question of hospitality is turned on its head because at that point, the question was, how can we be good hosts? How can we be good hosts to people to prove that we are good? But instead, Jesus says, no, it's not about you being good. It's not about you being good. We're going to flip Abraham's story on its head. Because unlike Abraham's story, where Abraham gets to play host to God, now the question is, what does your life look like if God were to play host to you? What would it look like if God was to be the host? What would it look like for this to be switched? Um, and, and it starts in the Old Testament prophets. They start to talk about this. They say things like, God will return and it will be like the greatest wedding reception you've ever been to with the choicest meat cuts and the finest vintage wines. And then Jesus shows up as a wedding guest in Cana and he's supposed to be the one receiving the hospitality, that the family, the bride and the groom, they're throwing a week-long banquet um, for this wedding in Cana and Jesus shows up And he totally flips the script because those big giant jars 
that he turns the water into wine in, that's the equivalent of 900 bottles of wine. Jesus doesn't just turn enough wine for like the wedding reception. It's 900 bottles of wine for a reception that probably wasn't bigger than 100 people. And then Jesus starts telling stories about um, hosts who create these massive feasts for their friends, but his friends don't show up. And so he starts inviting the strangers and the homeless and the outcast. And then Jesus says that if you're hosting a party to try to raise your social standing, to raise um, your standing in the community, if you're hosting these parties for personal gain, um, well, that's not really virtuous at all. That's just ladder climbing. If you really want to be virtuous, throw a party for people who can't pay you back. And finally, we're gifted with this mini feast that we partake in most weeks at church. The bread and the wine, the bread and the juice. It's a foretaste of what the prophets had predicted, the wedding feast to come. I'm going to tell you the truth. Staying at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel for a week was really nice. The staff were courteous. The service was outstanding. The food was out of this world. The craft beer selection was on point. You know, that's important for me. But it was a work trip. I'm not going to be able to afford to go back ever again. And the Ritz-Carlton knows this. Once the money ran out, once my work finished paying for the training seminar, the red carpet was rolled up. The bills were run through the credit card machine and the hotel staff were keen to help me call a cab to the airport, but they were less interested in offering me another night or two before I headed back home. We call it the hospitality industry, but in reality, it's not true hospitality by any stretch. It's an illusion. Any hotel chain would, any hotel chain would gladly bend over backwards to cater to your whims if you were a well-to-do socialite with family money, expensive tastes in cigars, and a need for privacy. Um, but in the ancient world, hospitality was valued above the profit margin. In our own time, that is less so. And when the prophets invited everyone to receive God's hospitality, worth and earning and payment were completely off the table. Um, here's how God describes it in Isaiah 55. God says this, Come, everyone who thirsts, Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, eat what is good, and delight yourself in rich food. Friends, you've heard it said that there is no such thing as a free lunch. These three weary travelers that Abraham received in our reading today, they certainly got a free lunch. The prophets proclaim the arrival of a free lunch in God's name, and when Jesus feeds crowds of four and five thousand strong, he asks nothing in return. The hospitality of God is such that all who seek him get a free lunch. And for now, it is bread and wine and the word of God, but at the final wedding reception to come, there will be infinitely more than 900 bottles of wine. And the wedding reception to come, there will be way more than 80 cakes. The finest cuts of beef in all of God's creation will be there. And maybe the kitchens of heaven will have their own chocolatier too. A guy can hope. And it's all for free. You cannot earn it with your good behavior. If you try to earn it with your good behavior, in fact, you'll offend the host and be kicked out. 
You can't pay for it either. Even if you split the check, the bill is so profoundly expensive that all the earth, gold of the earth could not pay your portion. Your good behavior is worthless here. The kingdom of heaven doesn't take cash or credit cards. It doesn't even take IOUs. God has done all the work. You simply get to receive. And so friends, you are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb, the great party that will celebrate Jesus' return to fix everything. We'll be celebrating Jesus' death and resurrection, which defeated death, which defeated sin and Satan. And the party to celebrate that triumphant victory will last for, I don't know, a millennium at least. And your name is on the guest list. Your RSVP has already been sent in. Your only option now is to put on your stretchy pants, pull up a chair, tie a napkin around your neck, and receive from the master host, the one who comes among us as one who serves. In Jesus' name, amen. I got the feeling when I woke, I feel it Ow! in my soul. Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania.